Shopamaniacs, you're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show. I'm Dave in the shed. Rupert with me is Chris in the booth. Corey, you're looking good, Chris. Hey, thanks. And this is going to be a, a good one. We haven't had a guest in a hot minute, and we have a guest this time. We have Emma Bostian. Hey, Emma, how are you? Hi, I'm very flattered to be here, especially if you haven't had a guest in a while. How are you? Good. We're great. Yeah, I don't know. It's just just random. Sometimes we go on little little roller coasters of of doing it and not. But this seemed like an excellent opportunity that lines up a little bit with uh, a book that you've released that everybody out there can buy now called Decoding the Technical Interview Process. The URL, of course, will be in the show notes, but it's called, it's at technicalinterviews.dev. Nice domain name. Goodbye Thank you there, so much, right? I was just going to say that my inherent, incessant need to buy every domain that I come across has finally paid off. (laughs) (laughs) That one worked out. Actually did the project after buying the domain. A return on investment. (laughs) Okay. And it's a bit of a crossover podcast because you are, of course, on the Ladybug podcast as well. Right on. So let's, I mean, we got to talk about interviewing. I think that's probably going to chew up a lot of the time here because that is a fascinating subject that so many people are interested in, probably because isn't there just like a lot of people in this world who basically are worried and scared perhaps about what is in store for them during this time in their lives? Is that the who you're talking to in this book? Yeah, absolutely. I wrote this a year ago in the midst of, not in the midst, at the beginning of COVID when a lot of developers were losing their jobs. And so everyone was kind of thrown into this panic mode of how do I study for technical interviews, especially if I don't have a computer science degree. And to be honest, in my experience, there really wasn't a resource for non-CS degree developers to go to, especially web developers. So that's kind of why I wrote this. Yeah. So if you non CS degree, meaning someone in the world who didn't like major in computer science in college, are those people, if you did, are you just, is this world just easier for you? Do you feel like the technical Um, interviews out there are kind of, they, they edge that way? mm, I would say yes and no. Yes. It's easier for you to land a job, uh, interview as a whole, just because a lot, oftentimes these big companies are searching for people with computer science degrees because there's this innate or subconscious bias that people with computer science degrees are more knowledgeable or will hit the ground running faster, which is total BS in my opinion. Um, But in my experience, having a computer science degree, the practical knowledge of how to be a web developer was not there. So people who are self-taught or went to boot camp, I believe, are more were more successful than I was when I started in my role because all I had was like Java and computer science algorithms and data structures. Right on, right on. So, so you're you're kind of rooting for the boot campers in a Absolutely. way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I think that's cool. I think that what's particularly cool is how self-selecting it is. You know, that people mm. they do it because they they really want to. They're attracted to the idea. Of- there was a. Th- a thread on Twitter the other day uh, with Adam Rackus, and he had made a comment about how if he saw like a huge stack of resumes, like how do you kind of siphon out like candidates who will be successful in a role and how do you prioritize them as interviewers or as interviews? And he made a comment about like, oh, well, if I saw, you know, a resume with 
a candidate who went to Harvard and graduated with a computer science degree, like I would prioritize them. And I'm like, do you understand like the privilege that comes along with that? Because not everyone can go to college at all, let alone Harvard. Uh, and and just because someone comes from a college degree or an Ivy League school does not mean that they have the skills necessary or the drive for that matter. Right, right. So so what what how would you do that then if you were you just can't is the answer that you 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 need to interview them because you you can't just like look at a stack and just be like yes no yes no yeah yes, that's no. hard i mean realistically how do you siphon through all of these resumes uh without using these automated tools like many companies don't have the resources to check each and every resume individually uh, but in my experience, having a solid portfolio of work that's varied and it, it demonstrates your different skill sets, that's going to be way more valuable in landing you an interview than just listing technologies on a resume. Yeah, right on. So take us through the a little bit more about the book and the, the who it's for and what, what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. So my primary... Mark, I don't even like the word market because it seems very inhumane, I guess, or like very objectifying. But my, my, my target audience yeah, is the, uh, yeah, <laughs> the people that I wanted to help. User persona <laughs> A is who? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, the people I wanted to, to reach were the people that I see myself in five years ago. So where was I five years ago was I was struggling. I was crying almost every day at work because I didn't understand development because I couldn't find beginner friendly resources that really spoke to me. Uh, I think we forget that understanding how to learn is a skill. Uh, people learn in different ways. And oftentimes the most successful way to learn uh, is the most difficult. And so I wanted to present these really high level concepts of sorting and searching algorithms and balancing trees and all of these concepts in an approachable manner with diagrams. Uh, so if you are listening to this and you've always struggled to understand merge sort or load like load balancers and systems designs, things like that, um, I wrote this for you. I wrote this as a resource I wish I had had five years ago. So that gosh, a load balancer is a great one because I just I don't even now. Whereas I, <laughs> I think I said in a previous podcast that I, it, nobody has bestowed this on me because I only work at have worked at pretty small places. But I feel pretty senior, you know. I've been at this couple decades now, you know. I've, I, it's like my hobby and my career. I'm like I know a whole bunch of stuff about making websites. I'd like to say, but I like to think that I would. Well, I don't like to think it. I hate to think it. That I would choke if somebody asked me, you know, describe describe a load balancer. I'd be like, it like requests come in and it balances gives them to the different servers yeah. <laughs> yeah balances loads and then i jump out the window it takes the know. load and then it balances that load <laughs> what more do you so need what if to you're know? what if you know even less than i do you know what if, yeah. are you is the goal then to 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 fake it or is the goal to like have enough of an understanding that you could you could talk about it at least semi-intelligently or what's happening i mean there? Realistically, there are two ways to study for a technical interview. The first is cram the night before, which superficially is pretty, uh, quote unquote, successful in that it allows you to short term memorize a lot of information at once, but not necessarily understand it. And this is quite ineffective. 
the the better method is to study a little bit over a long period of time using context switching as a tool. So context switching is the fastest way to burn this information into your brain and, and understand it at a deeper level um, because it allows you to access these pieces of information more often and that solidifies it and makes it easier to recall and recognize these things. Um, but again, that is the longer and more strenuous route. So that is the preferred method of how you would go about it. What was the original question? I'm totally talking in circles now. <laughs> well, it was kind of about, because there's so many great examples in, in the book, but this is one of them is that like, you know, let's say you're asked some question about, I mean, let's frame it. Let's say you're being interviewed and the interviewer says, you know, tell me what you know about load balancers or maybe more, something more specific. You had to write a Linked load balancer list. from scratch. What would mm-hmm. what would that be? And you don't know. You're a junior is the correct answer to just be like, I don't know. I have never written a load balancer. Or is the correct answer to be like a load balancer is a intermediary server that boo 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 Right. Um, well, first of all, if you don't know the answer to something, it's always best to admit it. Uh, but then make an educated guess if possible. Uh, and if you have a good interviewer, they A, will not be asking you trivia questions and B, will be like, OK, it's not worth our time. Let's explore a different area that you're more confident in. Uh, but that being said, it's it's always better to understand the concepts behind these things as opposed to memorizing code or memorizing definitions. Uh, I struggled with asynchronous JavaScript and having to explain what a promise is. That really got to me. And what I came to understand after a while, I remember I was interviewing with Gatsby uh, at Gatsby with Jason Langsdorf. And he, he asked me like, Oh, can you, he gave me a few options, which I appreciated that he gave me a choice of which question I wanted to answer. And then he said, one of them was, can you define a promise? And it kind of clicked for me in that moment. And I was like, I I gave this analogy of being at a restaurant and, and ordering food and the waiter, you know, takes your order and it brings back to the kitchen. And in the meantime, you can continue to talk with your friends and drink, you know, your drinks and all of that stuff. And either they'll bring your food or they'll come back and say, Oh, we're out of pasta. Like, do you want to order something else? Uh, And so for me, it was really like, oh, crap, like this is what I need to be doing to really understand these things is relate them to real world scenarios. Uh, And Mm. yeah, in the past, I'd just been memorizing descriptions and it really was it, it, it did me a disservice. I would be impressed by that, I think. Not that I interviewed that many people, although I will say I have two interviews this week, so I might have to mine you for some ideas for good interview questions that that if if, if I asked someone to d- describe promises to me and they talked about a diner, I'd be like, hell yeah, good job. That means that you think abstractly and could probably you understand this deeply enough that you could then relate it to other other likewise abstract things like you're like more useful to me in a way well that's all what problem solving is right it's taking your experiences solving specific types of problems and being able to recognize when that same type of solution will apply to new scenarios This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Flatfile. That's flatfile.io. One of the worst ways to spend your time is manually formatting spreadsheets. Thankfully, Flatfile has created Portal, the elegant import button. Flatfile Portal is a turnkey data importer that automatically formats, validates, and transforms customer spreadsheets so that data is ready to use in your backend. Portal integrates with virtually any application and in minutes can upgrade your customer data onboarding from emailing, etc 
Excel files back and forth to importing even the messiest of data correctly on the first try. Start for free at flatfile.io and high five for the sponsorship. Thanks so much. So cool. We'll do some more. We'll do some more example ones later because it's kind of a fun thing. But I am. So you interviewed at Gatsby, which I, I think is probably, you know, kind of dream job territory for a lot of devs out there that maybe use that tool and think how, gosh, how cool it would it be to work on some big tool like that, especially, you know, when you hear news like they just took 20 zillion dollars in funding and you're like, oh, dang, I want to ride that roller coaster or whatever it is. But still, in the grand scheme of things, probably not as big as you know, more people probably dream about working for Microsoft or IBM or Google or something. Is there any kind of different games you got to play? Is it, is it just a different world when you're interviewing for a Google than it is for interviewing for a Gatsby? Ooh, that's a good question. And my experience is mixed. So like these Fang companies, Fang style companies, large companies, uh, they typically will have interviewing committees that whose whole purpose is to evaluate the process, make sure that the questions are fair and whatnot. They evaluate related skills. Uh, and in my experience, those are the best processes out there. Uh, and their goal is to reduce implicit bias. Um, ironically, the interviews I've hated the most and absolutely resented were from startups who had something to prove. And they wanted to be like just as cool as the Fang style companies. And so their process was much less organized uh, and much more strenuous, in my opinion. Really? So they were almost the worst is the like... Absolutely. There's some jerk at the small company that is like heard that at Google, you have to guess how many gumballs fit in a bus. So they asked you how many marbles would it take for a hippopotamus to slide around the state of Arizona or something. And and it turns out that they're just a dick. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And absolutely. And let me tell you, if you're a dick to your candidates, they're going to freaking remember it and they're never going to interview with you again because I, I had this happen to me. But uh, so like, for example, you know, Google is notorious for these brain teaser style questions that I can confidently say they don't do brain teasers anymore. I will say their data structures and algorithms are very heavy in data structures and algorithms versus Spotify. What we try to do is make our questions relevant to something you would do in your domain and also day to day. So like, you know, a web developer going through data structures and algorithms there, they should be able to understand data structures as they pertain to web development and not just like code a linked list or a binary tree in JavaScript. Mm. Okay. So what would you, what would you ask? So you, you would need to know that if you're going to be a dev at Spotify you should know your objects from your arrays, let's say. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be a developer anywhere, I think that's a great skill. But that being said, hopefully uh, the companies are recognizing the type of position you are applying for and gauging that subjectively to that role. So like a super senior engineer is not going to be the same criteria as a junior level associate. This red flag stuff is interesting. It's, it's like, I, I've heard this and it seems to be true that it, this is a two-way street, right? You're being interviewed because obviously you like want a paycheck and like want to move up. You're, you know, this, it's important to you. So probably like you're you're the one in a in a sense that's that's trying to get something out of the company but it really is both ways right in a sense you're interviewing them too because if you discover during this process that this is some kind of horrible place to work you should like maybe consider not working there i know that's has a degree of privilege to it too but 
Is yeah. that true? Are you Absol- looking for I mean, red flags? I think absolutely. I think you should be. I think a lot of times candidates see these big name companies and they're just so excited to even be talking to someone from them that they forget they also need to be conscientious of whether or not this is a safe work environment for them and whether they enjoy the type of work they're doing. Uh, You know, like for me personally, you know, let's say I get a job offer from Google, but it's working on a project that would absolutely make me miserable. Do I really care? Like, do I care that it's Google or would I rather be happy uh, ha- would I be happier working in uh, a smaller company with not as much global notoriety, but I love what I do? Yeah, that is tricky. Oh, I don't even know, especially because the salaries are so like those top tier companies, they just pay well. They just do. And so, at some degree, they kind of have to because <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't know if this is globally true, but kind of because it can be they want really top tier candidates, but it also can be like kind of a bummer to work there because you're like asked to do, you know, you're you're working super hard and you're there's just you're trying to stand out in the crowd. I don't know. It seems like there's so much competition at those companies that they mm. salary is a, a is one of the things that they can compete on and win because they have bucket loads of money to compete with. Mm. So if you're a startup and you're trying to get somebody top tier, like your the way to get them is like being cool, whatever that means. Offering stock, which is tricky but possible, and then stuff like, I don't know, our work-life balance is good. I don't know. We work from home. That's cool, right? Although everybody has that now. Yeah, I think as well during your career – your priorities and what you're looking for with a a job and a company are going to change. Because for me, you know, the first few years of my professional career, I was more concerned about salary. And that was where I was at in life. I had some debt I needed to pay off. So salary was the most important. Now that I am financially stable and I'm back on my feet, the most important thing for me is team, like, rapport is that the right way to say that i don't know but like the relationships that i have with my team members especially working remotely in a foreign country my my teammates here a lot often are my friends and to some extent my family uh so it's okay you know if you're not making the same salary as a a netflix or a google engineer out in california uh is that the most important thing to you if it is okay maybe go ahead and apply to those roles if you're okay with the company culture maybe not fitting exactly with you but you have to really discern that for yourself what do you think dave could you could you hack it at netflix exactly right like the stage of life like the i'm dad have kids like i gotta power it down at five you know like I, i probably just I can sometimes work a little bit later, sometimes do, but like, I just got power down. So there's like different, you know, I, I think like life obligations kind of creep in too and kind of gauge, you know, how much stability you want, uh, how much benefits, you know? So, yeah. And, you know, can you roll at startup pace for the next whatever season of your life? I don't know, you know, maybe not, you know, some people can't. So I, I have one friend, he's, just he just was like he worked at a startup and he was tired of them changing their mind every month and he just was like you know I'm I'm done <laughs> I'm going to stablecompany.com or whatever mm-hmm. because this is sort of exhausting to kind of just chase a mythical money pony you know mm-hmm. so yeah I lost a candidate just the other week of a like I don't want to work at a tiny company I want to work at a big company I want to be lost in the sea of employees. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. Sorry. Can't offer that. 
you know, one, one, one thing from the book that I thought was like an absolutely excellent thing to ask a client, I don't know how, how often this appears in interviews or where you got this necessarily, but it was, um, it was around the idea of infinite scrolling, mm. which, wow, what a juicy one. Cause I feel yeah. like it could work. It could work across so many different spectrums of, yes. of building websites. So what's that one about? How, how would you maybe yeah. do that if you were an interviewer? Yeah, it's just kind of like, I like to relate these to things that, you know, candidates might see in real life. So imagine like you're building an Instagram style application where, you know, you can scroll and see your friend's photos. And, you know, as you scroll more and more load, um, this would be a cool systems design question. But it's also a really great web UI question, because there's so much user experience that you can dive into here. Also visual design. Uh, and that's kind of like, I've had this asked before in an interview when I was the candidate and I talked a lot about uh like UX design and and all of that like okay how at what point do you make a request for more images how many are we loading from the beginning what is the most valuable like uh property of the system so is it reliability or is it uh speed like a responsiveness so for this i don't think users care if it's very reliable because every time they they load new images they're going to see different things from their friends right they care more about responsiveness and how fast these images are loading uh how can we minimize these images so that we're not losing any quality but uh you know they load a lot quicker and what about users uh in countries or users on low data plans, things like that. There are so many different aspects that you can touch here. Uh, And I would suggest catering it to the role at hand. So if it's like a web position where you'll be interfacing with design a lot, focus on UX and accessibility is a big one too. Oh, so good. Because of that cross, you know, if if I just threw, threw the ball out there as an interviewer and said, talk to me about infinite scrolling, what goes through your mind? You know, what with your skill set, like, you know, I'd like, I think that's what I'd be listening for. And now this is not what you were on the boat. I'm just riffing here a little bit. I would be impressed if you talked to me about all that. If you talked to me about the speed of loading it and the success criteria of what, 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 what is this good? What the alternatives would be if we don't do this, what, you know, APIs are necessary to make this work both, you know, ones that we have to build and what ones are available in the browser. If you're like, I don't know, I'd attach an intersection observer to the thing. And, the, you know, I'd be like, oh, interesting. And what about the if back If somebody button? knows about intersection observer, I'm hiring them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but wouldn't that be, you, you'd learn a lot about a person if, I think, if the answer delivered to you was was listening to them tackle this big idea. And mm-hmm. how cross it is. I think that that would be neat. Not that everybody needs to have that wide grave skill. I mean, you said, you know, it'd be nice to scope it to, you know, what you're actually interviewing for. But that is a, it's great. It's a great interview. Yeah. I think, I think it's also important to approach interviews. If you are an interviewer, it's important to approach an interview as an opportunity to learn from the candidate. Because so often, like I had a systems design interview today and the candidate mentioned things I hadn't even thought of. And, you know, he's yeah. doing back end systems design and he's over here talking about uh, user experience. And I was like, oh, yeah, like that's. A, and I told him that I go, I really like that you said that. I think that was a really great uh, comment. It's, it's very important. And I hadn't even thought of that. And that's how we approach interviews at Spotify. We approach it as an opportunity for learning from our candidates and also as a conversation. This that gets me into like the idea like generalists for specialists, like they're a back end position, right? But then they kind of know kind of more front endy 
UX domain sort of stuff where like, what's your thoughts? Like, is it better to be a specialist or is it better to be a generalist or good effing luck? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I used to think like both were uh, completely equal and I think that they still are. I, I don't think it's, it's fair to say one is uh, more beneficial than the other, but my personal interpretation is as a younger developer, uh, newer in your career, it's better to be a T-shaped engineer where you have a primary focus of like web development. And then you have knowledge that into both UX, visual design, maybe, or, uh, you know, the back end side of things. So you have knowledge about, you know, the tangential spaces, but the, the more experience you get in your career, I think that's when you can really specialize in and become more vertical. So you have a bunch of personal experience with interviewing, both as, you know, being interviewed and doing interviewing. And um, surely since since the publication of the book, you've heard you've heard from people, too. I wonder what what have you heard any uh, like real wacky stories of interviewing Mm. disasters or anything? I don't, I mean, uh, so my inbox right now is like 200 unread emails. And it's funny because I'm like, I'll do 20 a day. I'll respond to 20 because I read all of them and I respond individually. And every Mm -hmm. day they're back up over 200. Um, Most people are just, you know, uh, saying that this was really useful to them and that they failed, you know, an interview, but they're hopeful. And this, this gives them motivation moving forward. I haven't heard any like really bad horror stories per se. Uh, I've had a couple myself, but that was again, back to this like egotistical startup guy who was badgering me with trivia questions at 6am my time during the recruiter phone call. It was like absolutely horrific. Uh, but yeah, I haven't heard any like super bad stories. I've heard some really nice things that, you know, this helped someone land a job offer and that's really my goal. Yeah. That's the best, isn't it? Look at that. Yeah. Help somebody actually get... Get their foot in the door. Get started. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Around. That's around.co or follow the link in the show notes. It's a new video calling app that's very different from the other video calling apps out there, I'd say. So uh, they say this, and I think it's really true. It's designed for collaboration more so than for meetings. You know, So it's not this like big rectangle and you're just looking at everybody in the rectangle. Each person that you're talking to is like this kind of like a floating head. You see their face cropped into a circle and then part of the UI and UX of it, there's a lot of fun built into it, but you can apply filters to it and stuff. It just feels a little bit less fatiguing to be, to know that you're just like a talking head on somebody's screen. Not They're not looking at like every pixel that your camera is picking up. It's really clever and it feels really nice. So yeah, they say it's more for collaboration. I think that's true. It's very easy to fire one up. You know, you fire open the app, get a link, share it with somebody you're in the meeting, you know, all kinds of security built into that. You know, you can make sure that you have to approve them before popping in. Nobody's going to bomb your meetings anyway, but you know, lots of protection there. Or you're in Slack, you just type slash around, pops open a meeting, everybody clicks into it, probably use that a billion times. That is, that is, that's how things work. You know, there's that kind of that pseudo real time thing of Slack. Hey, can we chat this out? Boom, slash around. Uh, you're in there. It's great. There is lots of uh, fun UI and UX touches as a part of it. 
Uh, that's great. The screen sharing is really nice. It's everything you expect in there. You share the whole window or select a particular window to share. And it has the control aspect built in too. So if somebody's like, hey, I'll, let me take control for a minute. I'm going to type here. You know, I do a lot of pair programming that way. It's got all those features built in. So out of the gate, it's just a great video call app. And it just seems like it has a super bright future because they just really got the details right. Thanks around. Are there are there things like, uh, you know, this is this is like your books about like acing the technical interview. Right. But there's there's obviously some human qualities somebody needs to possess. Are, are there um, do you have any tips on uh, how to, I guess, uh, not be a, a total schlub or something? <laughs> uh, I have some books I recommend. Uh so there are some really cool books about like productivity. Like I love Atomic Habits is a really good one if you're looking to like convey the fact that, you know, you you like to learn new skills and you have like a really solid plan on how to, to grow your skills. Uh, my favorite book of all time is called The Culture Map. It's by Aaron Meyer. And it's all about how to work with cross-cultural teams, which is extremely important now that we're all remote. Uh, I If I hear a candidate who discusses empathy and communication, those are like, yes, absolutely. I want to work with you. Um, we forget as well that oftentimes I've never had an interview that wasn't in English. And I think we take for granted the fact that we speak English as a first language, but many candidates don't. And so there's a lot of anxiety with them in terms of how to communicate effectively. So mm-hmm. if you are uh, an English as a second or third language candidate, uh, I recommend reading the culture map because it's going to help you empathize, not empathize, but like communicate in the manner in which your uh, American, if you're being interviewed by an American developer um, from the USA, uh, how they think, because we are very low context communicators, meaning we like clear, explicit communication. We like redundancy. We like to have all the validation that things are going the way that you want them to go. But many cultures are taught to read between the lines, to read the air, quote unquote. Uh, And so they're not perhaps as communicative or explicit in their communication as we are. And so we could see a candidate who's maybe quieter or not as expressive in, in their thoughts and just think, oh, they're a bad communicator. When in reality, they're just communicating the way that they're taught and they're used to. So if you're an interviewer, highly recommend reading that. And also if you are a non-native English speaker, I'd recommend reading that as well because it can, or not non-native English speaker. If you are interviewing with an American company, uh, I'd recommend reading that as well. That's a good point. I, Cause I, I lived in Japan for a while and I read a book on like Japanese culture while I was living there. And, and, and it was weird cause I felt like I was reading a book about myself <laughs> and, because it was like kind of like passive aggression or working around the problem. If you think of like the problem or is in the center, but you just kind of dance around the problem uh, and beat around the bush is what we call it in English, uh, the idiom, but uh, that's how they get things done there. They all kind of just pepper like, Hey, what has anyone thought about that? And then some other person's like, Oh, I don't know. And then it just kind of drifts there for mm-hmm. days or something. And then that's, but that's how you bring up a problem kind of gently over time. And you just kind of zero in on it eventually. And I was like, that's sort of how I operate, you know, but in America that's called passive 
aggressive behavior or whatever. And that's a bad, you know, you should just come out and say like, I think we should F and change the navigation. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's like, are we the most business. blunt culture? Yes. We might be the no. worst yeah. most. <laughs> well, so we are low context communicators, but we are indirect negative feedback givers, which means we do this compliment sandwich where if you're going to give negative feedback, you try to wrap it in something a little less uh, harsh. And we use downgrader words like a little bit or kind of or sort of um, Germany and, you know, the the not the yeah, I guess the Netherlands, some Scandinavia uh, are much more. Those are direct negative feedback cultures uh, where they literally just say it bluntly and they can come across as harsh. Uh, what's interesting about Asian cultures that I it blew my mind was this uh, omitting the bad and stating the good. And it's up to the listener to understand what was not great. So if you're making a PowerPoint deck with 15 slides and your Asian coworker says, oh, I love the first 10 slides. Okay, great. Uh, that means that the last five slides need work, but they're not going to explicitly state that to you. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Damn. You know what else is really interesting real quick? And this can help with like problem solving. Um, if if you ask a, a person from the United States of America to take a photo of someone, you have someone sitting in a chair in a room. You say, OK, take a photo of them. Oftentimes we will take just, you know, a headshot of the person. Uh, someone from an Asian culture will take a photo of the entire room. So you get to see the person sitting in the chair with the whole context of the room. So. You'll, you might notice in, in technical interviews as an interviewer that, you know, an American candidate uh, solves problems um, or approaches problems much more differently than someone from an Asian culture where they're taught to view the whole versus a subset of the whole. Yeah, I couldn't when, when I was teaching English in Japan, I couldn't get around the fact like they like we'd be taking a test and they just like let the kids talk to each other during the test. And I just was like. Can somebody kick these kids out? Like, like this is you, you have lost the reason for testing, but they, you know, there's some wisdom there. It was like, Hey, like in real life, they're never going to like approach problems just by themselves. Like they're always going to have work colleagues in this small Island society or this small town. So they're always going to work things together with people. So maybe that's the best thing to do. You know, like maybe that works that's their style and we can like write a note on their file and stuff like that and, uh, and tailor their education for that. Like they're maybe not the most academically inclined child, but like they're going to get through, they need to learn how to talk to people. And so I just was like, this is changes my whole American. Yeah. I mean, changes my whole America. It, it all goes back to the history of a culture. Like Asia, Asia has a long shared history. And so they're able, they are more, like collaborative in nature, it's much more of like, you don't need to speak all the words to understand what someone's saying because they have that long history versus the United States. You had many different cultures moving there and you had to be the fastest. This move fast and break things is an American, you know, culture uh, that really stemmed from the history of how this uh, country came to be. And this trickles into how we uh, problem solve and collaborate. That's interesting. It sure is. You know, I was going to say one thing too, like, um, just on the back to like more technical interview stuff. Like uh, one thing I, cause I have like this fear that whatever my company I've worked for for 14 years disappears one day and then I have to get a job. Uh, but like, um, like jargon is a big thing. I, I didn't, you know, I took some CS classes in college, but I didn't like, like pass that or like I quit that. Cause I just was like, I hate this jargon stuff. Like, so, and I have a friend who interviewed at Amazon and he showed me this like interview question. It was like, 
given a dictionary of blah, blah, blah items, and then another dictionary of user-generated content with blah, blah, you know, and I just was like, dude, this makes no sense. But then I thought about the problem a little bit more and a little bit more. I was like, oh, this is basically like given a list of top products, recommend a top product to this user who has bought like whatever, five similar products and stuff. So it's just basically like you might also like, you know, was the feature they were trying to describe. Yeah. It was like, oh, I know how to code that. <laughs> like, But it was just like, uh, how do you get around like jargon, like these mm. binary sort trees and linked lists and all this stuff is, is there? Because I feel like a lot of self-taught developers have to pick this up on the fly, mm. right? Like we never. Yeah. I think there's some jargon that you're just going to have to know. Unfortunately, like the names of data structures, I don't, or like the names of algorithms. I don't see a way to necessarily get around that. Uh, but things like, like if you hear a, a word or a phrase or, or something in the, the prompt of a question that you just don't understand, I think the best way to problem solve that is to like paraphrase the question back to the interview and make sure that you like can, sort out all the kinks in the question that you're not sure what they mean. Mm. Um, so for example, if you, first of all, as an interviewer, please don't ask your candidates, what is the big O runtime of this algorithm? That, that's like way too computer science-y. Um, but if you as a candidate get something like that, oh, like what's the big O? It's really good to know that big O it relates to the efficiency of an algorithm as, as it pertains to performance and storage. Um, but if you don't know, I think it's okay to like ask, like, oh, can you maybe explain what this is? Uh, I, I think we should really stop expecting our candidates to know these things. And, and you know, a way to, to phrase this, that it's still, you're still getting what you want to know out of this big O question without using that term is like, okay, can you evaluate, like, explain to me why two nested for loops is less performant than two for loops sitting at the same level in this code? Like, why is one more performant than the other? Um, yeah. That's a better way to ask a question than just throwing out all of these terms that you would expect candidates to know. What's the bad way to, is that what big, I don't even know what big O Big O is. is like the upper bound on an algorithmic complexity. So for example, if you have uh, like, if you have an array and you want to find like the smallest element in the array, you could have two for loops where you've got two different pointers and they compare every element against every other element. And if you've got two nested for loops, um, this big O upper bound, like the worst case scenario is you have to check every element against every other element in that array. So that would be mm -hmm. big O of N squared because you have to run through it N times for the outer loop and N times for the inner loop and you multiply those together. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's confusing, but it doesn't need to be. That's the thing. I see. So the, the real question is like, okay, that's the worst you can do. Mm -hmm. What, how can you do better? Like what, exactly. whatever, right? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. And that stuff is in here, the book, by the way, there's lots of like this, it's tech isn't just like, oh, book is very much not a wall of text of, you know, read these, read this advice. There's all kinds of code in this book of, which I think is great. I think it could be like you took a boot camp and maybe you know some of this, but this might fill in the blanks with some things that you almost surely are going to need to know at some point. So like if you knew, if you knew three of these cool, maybe that fourth one you didn't, then it's going to really save your butt. So what's some of the tech stuff in here that you're, I don't know, that comes to mind the most or that was, you felt like it was the most juicy when writing it? Mm, I mean, obviously it's going to be data structures and algorithms, but that being said, <laughs> as a web developer, I actually really liked my, my chapter about like, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, accessibility. My goal with that was not to re redo all of the resources that are out there to learn those technologies. It was really to narrow down the set of skills that you're going to probably want to study for each of them and how to prioritize that because 
when I was studying for like my web domain interviews, it's like, holy crap, I have to to memorize everything about every single language and technology that I'm working with. And it's like, okay, how do we prioritize those for the ones you're most likely to see? That's, I think that's nice too. I'd, ho- I'd almost hope. I'd, be, I'd love to be, be a fly on the wall of an interview where you're asked about big O and then you're asked about the button element. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, hell yeah. Good job. <sighs> that's a red flag. Mm. Don't work for that company. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I kind of meant it as like, it'd be nice if they, you know, if if that was kind of a, you know, maybe not, you wouldn't be kicked out the door for not knowing it, but that, you know, that you should use a button instead of a div or something that, mm. you know, I don't care if you're a systems engineer. I hope the whole damn company knows that. Yeah. One. So I have some interviews this week. One, one of the um, things I, is I don't do this that often. So my, my skill level as an interviewer, I hope to, uh, you know, I need to practice too. W- one thing I know that we're not doing it because their first interviews is, is I don't have a bunch of code. I'm not asking about a whole lot of code on round one. Is that common or not? My, 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 the thinking for us was that I want to kind of get to know you a little bit first. Like, what do you do? Some philosophical stuff, really, a just a more informal chat. Like big O is not going to come up in this first interview. May, that could change in the future if you think that's a mistake or, or what, but you know, the, the point is like, I, I have no idea who you are mm. and I, I think I'm going to learn more about you asking more casual questions than yeah. questions. Yeah, I, th- I agree. I mean, there are plenty of ways to to find out technical information about someone through a, a conversation. So I remember, like, I was asked in an interview, uh, like, how do you stay up to date in the industry? Or how do you lo- how do you learn new skills? And for me, it was mm-hmm. like, oh, I love to, like, read technical newsletters like CSS tricks and, you know, front end focus mm-hmm. and all those things. And if someone or like I like to read programming books, Um those kinds of things. And if someone says that those types of like, if they say that as their answer, then, you know, okay, this person likes to learn, you know, they like to stay up to date and it, you know, it prevents you from having to check every single skill. Um, But at the end of the day, we're hiring people. We're not hiring machines because we, Mm -hmm. and also we program for humans. We don't program for machines. They're just kind of the interpreters. So I think, you know, it's important to get to know people as people and not just as, you know, can they, you know, problem solve this insanely complex algorithmic question? Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you don't necessarily mind a non-technical first interview. I think they're the best. I think that's how it should be done. It should be about the role, about the company, about the person and and what they're interested in learning. Like, why do they apply to your company? What are they looking for to get out of this role? Uh, And it's also good to see whether or not, you know, they talk crap about their current employer or their previous employers. Right. Mm. Uh, And and learn about that. Uh, If you're listening to this, never talk shit about an employer. Let me tell you that right now. It's that's an immediate red flag to an interviewer. You know, there's a way to say, you know, that you need to move on to to something else. Like you're ready for a new challenge. You'd like to explore a different company size, stuff like that. But don't talk crap about them. Yeah, I guess for me, it would be I don't, I don't know. It depends on who they were and why, you know, but 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 it probably wouldn't look super good in a first talk, you know, because to me, it would signal some degree of like negativity in general. You know, like if you went on a first date and all they did was complain about the food or something you'd be like that's so that's you right you're like yeah. a complainer basically like they just talk so. about their ex the whole time like <laughs> yeah yeah you're like huh. mm, this is well yeah okay you're saying a little something about yourself that that's that's <laughs> kind of a bummer to me in a way because i certainly don't jive that yeah. well with people that are overly negative uh okay that's cool but certainly 
you know, for us anyway, there's going to be technical stuff too. Yeah. Uh, but just, but just later, but just secondarily. Do, what's your experience like? I I've heard of like you know people are on their third or sixth round of interviews. Like oh. that the interview process seems to be like getting longer. Yeah. Um, as especially as you get more senior, maybe. Uh, what's your experience there? And is it is the hiring process broken, or can it be better? Or mm. what, what's your sense? Yeah, I think it is broken in a lot of ways. But at the same time, how can we ensure that the people that we're hiring are able to success, like be successful in the role? And that's that's uh, something that both parties should want to know. Like as a candidate, do you want to be thrown into a role where you're going to be overwhelmed? Because I've been there and it is not fun for my mental health. Um, so I think, yes, it is broken in many ways. Um, but that being said, how can we actually ensure that someone will thrive. Um, I think one thing Europe does really well is we have probation times of six months, um, which protects both the employer and the employee to say, hey, we're going to pay you, you know, you're a a full-time team member. But after six months, let's have a talk about like, if you're going to sign on permanently. And, you know, you get evaluations from your team members halfway through. So you are very uh, well aware, you know, where you can improve and if it's going well and and all of those things. I think that's a much better system than having these massively drawn out uh, tests for candidates. Um, but yeah, the, the process is long. Like most of the interviews I've gone through, you have an initial recruiter call where you get to know the recruiter, you learn about the role. The second is like coding test, whether that's asynchronous through an online portal that's timed or you have a remote interview or in person or whatever. Um, from there, it's typically the onsite, which is usually a half day or all day event where you go usually would go yeah you would usually go on site and have five hours of interviews like uh two coding or two data structures and data structures and algorithms like a web interview systems design uh hiring manager and process interview uh and at that point then they would decide if they want to give you an offer five hours yeah and often and often these are not paid um and, and many companies will actually flag candidates to their offices, which guess what? You have to take vacation time for. And if you've got a family, you can't necessarily do that. So yeah. you also have to kind of lie, don't you? If you're yeah. like, I need to go somewhere yeah. for a reason. My uncle's getting married. <laughs> <laughs> the old uncle's getting married. Uh-huh. That's good. <laughs> Oh God! How was the wedding day? The what? The <laughs> huh? good, really good. Oh. They had. Pizza. <laughs> Definitely not in San Francisco. That's for sure. <laughs> wow. That's a five hours of interview. Is that just the worst or is that survivable? That's pretty standard, but uh, I, this is so sad to say. I guess the longer you're in the process, the long, the more interviews you've done, the more used to these things you become, which is super sad. That's the part that's broken, in my opinion. Um, there's only there, there are things companies can do to, to – make the process a little bit less broken. Um, so for example, one thing Spotify does is they have two interviewers. They have a lead and a shadow and we submit our feedback, uh, individually without talking to each other. So this helps prevent unconscious bias. Um, and like, that's one thing I think all companies should be doing. Um, you should also be having diverse interviewers, uh, to ensure that, like you're getting all candidates from all different backgrounds and you're not just picking ones that look like you or have the same background as you. 
but yeah, as a whole, I would say the process is definitely broken and I honestly wish I knew how to fix it. Mm. I've had, I've had a few friends like what, well, this is more in like project management roles and stuff like that, but they'll like, like one guy like spent 40 hours, like putting together a PowerPoint presentation, like a fake PowerPoint. And like, he delivers it like high fives out the door. Yeah, man, that was the best we've ever seen. Good job. Good job. Didn't get the job, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just like, what? And another friend that happened to me and another friend, he like interviewed. And then like the feedback he got was you weren't energetic enough. And I'm just like, how? Because like, it's a professional interview. You're supposed to be like suit and tie, button up shirt, blah, blah. Hey, yes, let's talk business, business. And like, but did they want like a youth minister coming in there? Like, Hey guys, let's like do balloon animals, (laughs) you know, like, like I don't, that bothers me to such a degree. Like just uh, how do you, right? like uh, should companies be upfront about this stuff or, or like, do you, what tools do you have to be like, why did I not get that job and never do that to me again? Yeah. I, I think companies need to be straightforward. I, I did a take-home project. First of all, take-home projects. That's another area of the process that I totally forgot about that many companies will require you to do spend time outside of work doing these projects and then submitting it and then potentially presenting it. And I had this happen at IBM in Germany where I did that and I gave the interview and they said, uh, or they presented it and they had no questions. They said this was the best um you know, presentation we've had, but, uh, we just don't have the money to hire. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't have the money to hire. They were like, we want to make you an offer. We just like, can't cause we don't have the money. I'm like, why did you post a job in the first place? What? <laughs> um, now I'm I, double mad. Oh my I, gosh. <laughs> I also interviewed at HelloFresh and I, it, their requirements did not say you needed to use a JavaScript framework. And so I just used vanilla JavaScript for the whole project, spent hours on it. They basically asked me to redo their entire application, which is an ethical issue, first of all. Um, and then my feedback was, oh, you should have used a framework or library. And I'm like, okay, you got to put that in your requirements then. Yeah, wow. Mm. So do you think do you think there's a lot of misfires? There must be of like, of like, candidates that weren't hired that probably should have won for stupid reasons or, mm. or, you know, the other way around, you know, hires that were like, well, you nailed the bubble sort. So you're in, but we did, we, we forgot to check if you were a dick or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't change that. Can you? Yeah. <laughs> no, it takes a lot of therapy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there must be, there must be the, 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 the bubble sort thing I always thought was, um, was kind of a joke. I, I would think of it in my mind as like, like if you're asked to do that, it, it, like people don't actually ask that. Right. But that it's certainly in here and your book explains it tremendously well. So I think if somebody bought this book and read that, you could probably, you could probably, if somebody threw you the explain to me how the bubble sort works, you're able to answer that question. But is it, is it, is that real? Have you been asked if to they ask sort you that something? run? No, I've been asked to sort like a list of integers, for example. Um, and what's important there is to just pick pick a divide and conquer algorithm that's efficient, it's like merge sort or quick sort. Like you don't need to know all these sorting algorithms, to be honest. Um, and they're all just concepts, right? I think that 
when you start getting into like the names and the code, it can be really intimidating, but just remember the concepts, like how you like pick up, if you use quicksort, I think they, it's all about partition elements and you pick an element and then you recursively sort either side of the, the array and then, you know, merge them back together. So you don't need to know every single sorting or searching algorithm. Just, just understand like the most efficient one at a conceptual level. Um, but you shouldn't be expected to necessarily write all of the code perfectly. Yeah. And then if the answer, like, are you, because we all know how we actually do it, right? And this is well past the point of a joke at this point. You Google it and you find a thing and then you do what it said in the thing, you know? That's how you actually sort an array. Or you hope that the language that you're in already has a sorting algorithm and you just mm-hmm. use it. But but that's like, that's not the point, right? Even, theoretically, people asking you this aren't even... It's isn't it more about learning how you think or whatever is like is supposed that true? to be yeah it's supposed <laughs> to be but sometimes it can turn into uh, learning how much the interviewer is like an egotistical maniac like if it's not done well like as an interviewer you should never be flexing your intelligence ever. It should be a conversation. One of the things Spotify also does that I really enjoyed uh, as a candidate was that they said, this is a conversation we don't expect you to memorize APIs. So if you need to look something up on your end or want us to look it up for you, we can do that. It's a collaborative session. And I loved that because I hate nothing more. Like there's nothing worse that will throw you off your interview game than remembering the API for slice or splice. And which one is it? And I don't know. (laughs) Does it? Gotcha. Got them. Does it mutate the original array or not? You know? Go try to remember that. Good luck. Is it inclusive or exclusive with the indices? Who knows? But let's just say you wanted to look at basically a comic book explanation of how Quicksort works. That's available to you for purchase at technicalinterviews.dev. It's a really good book. It's like over 200 pages of solid gold. And like you don't have to read it, right? Like in in sequential order, you could like pick up the pieces you don't really or whatever. You could you could find the chapters you don't necessarily you don't have to read it in order right no yeah no i use it i would use it as a reference and a checklist especially for like take-home projects but i promise everyone listening i didn't pay them to say such nice things it sounds like i did though but thank you (laughs) is there anything else you want to say about that book or yourself or anything else you work on or what i think just the fact that like this is an evergreen project so it's going to be continuously updated and grown especially from the interviewer side of things we really plan to expand it there and if you buy it you get lifetime updates so just don't feel like you know oh i I bought the first edition like i'm not going to get any updates no you will uh and we like to do purchase parity is that yeah purchase parity so we'd like to keep it really affordable for people was that the thing where if you're in a country where money goes less far it's less expensive for you to buy it yeah that's pretty cool how does that work technically is it simple is it I don't know because I outsource this. I'm working with the Egghead IO team and Joel Hooks. They I have uh. they've saved my life. I mean, they handle everything for me. I just produce the content uh, and all of that stuff and they they do the design and all of all of those things. That's awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much Emma for coming on the show. Uh for people who aren't following you and uh listening to your podcast and giving you money, how can they do that? You can find all my shit posts on Twitter. Uh I I use the Bird app daily. Um that's the best place to reach me. All right. 
Well, perfect. All right. Uh, and thank you uh, for coming on the show. This is really awesome. And thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast of choice. Be sure to start her favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. And uh, support us over on the Patreon.com slash Shop Talk Show and join the Discord. And Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Hmm, shoptalkshow.com. <laughs>